This is Darrell Lalia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 68. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur and you are listening to the before the millions podcast hey this is mark asquith the host of the seven minute mentor podcast global entrepreneur and all-round geek and you are listening to the before the millions podcast i am mc lobster the cash flow ninja and you're listening to before the millions podcast you're listening to the before the millions podcast but whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent you've come to to the right place. Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. And now your host, DeRay Olalaye. Hey, what's up? What's going on, BTM tribe? Welcome back to another episode, another installment of the Before the Millions podcast. And this podcast is dedicated to lifestyle design for those of you that are new, for those of you that don't know. We like to achieve lifestyle design through real estate. And what's lifestyle design? I mean, lifestyle design in my eyes, my definition is living life on your terms, however you want, wherever you want, with whoever you want. Many of us lifestyle design entrepreneurs, we can operate our business from anywhere in the world. So whether you're in Turks and Caicos, whether you're in Germany or Japan, or you're in Jamaica, it doesn't matter because you can get your work done and still have fun. So again, if this is your first time, welcome to the show. And we're going to talk all things lifestyle design. We're going to talk about how you can start creating these income streams so that you can go on and do the things that you truly love. Currently, I'm speaking to you guys from the UAE. I'm in Dubai right now, and I love coming to Dubai. Dubai is one of my favorite places in the world, just because I have so much fun every single time I come out here. And although I came to Dubai with the intent of working on the business and in the business, at least 40 to 50% of the time, I got here and I decided not to. And that's because I have the ability to do that. And many of you guys out there are either have the ability or are looking for the ability to do that. And that's why we, we congregate on the show every single week. Now, today's guest, his name is Chris Voss, and he doesn't have the background of a typical guest. He's not a real estate investor. I guess you would say he's a lifestyle entrepreneur, but he's a master negotiator in actuality. And when I say master negotiator, I'm not just talking about business deals and negotiating with the family and one-on-one small little negotiations. I'm talking about a master negotiator. So he's been in very many international crises, high stakes negotiations. He was actually the lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He's also a member of the Joint Terrorist New York Task Force, and he's been on many high profile cases. He's negotiated the surrender of hostages. He's negotiated with bank robbers before. And then Chris decided to take his skills to South Beach. No, seriously, he decided to take his skills to Harvard Law School. And now he focuses on business negotiations. I mean, all the skills that he learned at the FBI, how to negotiate with terrorists, how to negotiate with bank robbers, how to negotiate when trying to get criminals to release a hostage. All of those skills, he took that and he applied it to business. And today we want to apply some of those negotiation skills to real estate, to real estate investing per se. 
I mean, you may be in the middle of a negotiation with a seller right now. Things may not be going well. You may not know how to speak to the seller. You may not know what the outcome of this situation would be. I mean, yeah, you may know that you're looking for certain terms and if the seller doesn't meet those terms, then you're going to move on to the next deal. But how do you know what's a good compromise? How do you know if you should compromise? Maybe you should look for a win-win situation. We're going to talk about all of that on today's show. Not only that, but we're going to talk about Chris's journey. I mentioned a little bit of it, but we're really going to get into his journey and talk about the inception of his entrepreneurial path. Why Chris decided to become a cop. So if you're ready to learn how to negotiate in business and in life, then let's get to the episode. While you guys get to the episode, I'm going to take sand out of my shoes because I've been in the desert all day. DeRay's Tip of the Week. Tip of the Week, right? The amount of knowledge and insight and information in any field of human endeavor that's available today is unmatched. I mean, you can literally sink your teeth into any subject matter for as long as you want, as much as you want, as deep as you want. And normally I will talk about how to filter through this information and how a lot of this information is a waste of time and you and how you should find one certain step-by-step formula to do something and go do it that way. But today I want to talk about the fact that there's just so much info out there and it's beautiful, actually. You know, I would like to consider myself an avid, kind of good fantasy football player. And if you guys don't know what fantasy football is, it's literally just picking a group of individuals who may not be on the same football team in the NFL, but collectively they're all on your team. And if your team beats, let's say your friend's team who you're playing fantasy football against, then you win. Now, if you guys know about fantasy football, then you know how addicting it is. And I love fantasy football from maybe like December to July. I don't really pay attention to football. I don't pay attention to fantasy. I don't pay attention to the stats, the news, anything. And I quite literally unsubscribe from a lot of the podcasts that I listen to that cover fantasy football. But let August come around and it's like, where are my podcasts? Where are these YouTube channels? Where, you know, where's ESPN, whatever the case may be. And it's just like, there's so much info out there. One of my favorite fantasy football podcasts is called The Fantasy Footballers. And I quite literally cannot get enough of their podcasts. And I was thinking today, I was just like, man, like they release an episode literally every day, like Monday through Friday, they release an episode. And those one hour episodes are still not enough for me. Like I need more. I want more. I want to hear more. I want to learn more. I want to analyze more. I'm just like, man, I want to be able to be ready for when fantasy football starts in about two weeks. And I was just like, I don't have to limit myself to this podcast. I can find more podcasts. I can go on ESPN and listen to some of these analysts. I could go on YouTube and watch some of these other experts. I mean, there's so many mediums that I can find so much information that I never just run out of information to listen to or learn. So I think about that. I'm just like, that applies for everything. That literally applies for everything. There's nothing out there. I mean, guys, there's literally no subject matter out there. If you want to learn how to collect coins, I'm sure there's there's at least 100 podcasts out there about how to collect coins. More specifically for real estate investing, if you want to learn about tax liens, there are podcasts and YouTube channels and bloggers out there that specifically talk about that. And there's an abundance of information out there. Now, again, I love to filter and I love to make sure that I follow one proven track and proven system. But when you know that you have access to all these resources, there's almost no excuse I mean, I was thinking today, I was just like, man, so I listened to the Fantasy Footballers podcast today and it was a great podcast. It lasted for about an hour and I was just like, okay, well, I'm mad and I want more and there's nothing I can do. 
And then I got out of it. I was just like, well, no, there's so much more out there. I can learn so much more. I can do so much more. I can, I can find different things. There's so many other people that I've listened to in the past that I love and I go need to go back and sign up for their newsletter or for their podcast or for whatever it may be. So again, guys, the tip of the week this week is literally just knowing that there's so much information out there. Do not limit yourself. Every single subject matter, I believe, in the world has been converted to audio or video. Some expert is out there talking about it right now. As I do all the traveling that I do, I, I learned that there are so many niches out there. People have the funniest and the weirdest hobbies, but there's a thought leader out there. There's a blogger out there. There's somebody else who shares the same sentiments and you can go acquire that information. That in itself, guys, I, I just think that's super powerful. I think about before all these technological advances and how individuals who maybe discovered a certain hobby or a certain thing that they love doing, how they went about going to acquire that information, whether it was a library or listening to the one radio channel that they had, or just forgetting about it because there was no way to actually acquire information on that subject matter. Today, you don't have that excuse. You want to get into real estate investing? Get into real estate investing. You want to figure out the million and one different methods of getting in? Soak your teeth into this stuff. There is no excuse, guys. You know, the other day I found a podcast on how to read faster, how to read like eight to 10 times the speed that you read now. Just literally, that's all the podcast is about. And I was just like, wow. And this, this guy has millions of subscribers. Like, this is really amazing. Knowledge is power, but only knowledge that it's put to use. So as much as I love that you guys are going to go out and acquire knowledge in whatever area of expertise, whatever hobby that you have, whatever hobby that you like, you actually have to put that knowledge to use to get some kind of result. So with that being said, guys, let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. On today's show, I'm super excited, super ecstatic to introduce to you guys the man himself. We like to call him the master negotiator, Mr. Christopher Voss. Chris, how's it going? It's going really well. Thanks, man. And, and you know what? If, if I could put an adjustment on that title, I think I'm a great negotiation coach. So wow. let's put it like that. I'm a, you know, Phil Jackson was an NBA player. He was a, pre, he was a darn good player. He was a great coach. So I, I like to help people get better. So take us back into the early days and take us back to maybe younger Chris in your formative years and what you were doing back then and kind of paint us a picture of who you were and some of the things that you started realizing along your path. Yeah, I'm a small town Midwestern guy. I grew up in a blue collar entrepreneurial family. You know, my dad was a hardworking guy. My son and I have always joked a really hard thing about working for a boss that would never ask you to do something he wouldn't do himself. Well, there was no job too dirty for my dad. So you better be prepared to work hard and get dirty if you work for my father. So that's, that's kind of the environment I grew up in. Work hard and, uh, and figure it out. And a Midwestern guy, that's, that's pretty much where it all started. So what was maybe your first entrepreneurial endeavor? What kind of forged your path? Yeah, you know, you want to go way back, first entrepreneurial endeavor. I was one of those kids that had a little Kool-Aid staying out in front of the house, you know, uh, a you know, little tiny kid trying to figure out a way to scare up a few pennies, a few nickels, and that kind of stuff. So I must have, as a little kid, I must have tried like all that stuff. I remember one year I sold seeds, you know, I sold Christmas cards. I wasn't a great salesperson. I do like negotiation an awful lot, not exactly the same thing. But, you know, I started doing that stuff from the very beginning. And then my father, you know, he was an entrepreneurial guy. So I always had that, I think I always had that attitude. While I was with the government, I always wanted to, took an entrepreneurial approach. I mean, be independent. Think for yourself. Figure stuff out. Have fun. You know, I, I got to tell you something. I decided to be a cop when I saw a movie when I was 16 years old 
And the, the things that struck me about the, the cops in that movie, because it's based on a true story, uh, two guys in New York, the movie was the super cops. I mean, these guys had a lot of fun. They were really creative, and it did a lot of good. They put a lot of bad guys in jail. They worked in Bed-Stuy, which is not the Bed-Stuy of New York today, which is gentrified. You know, they worked in Bed-Stuy when it was a tough, tough place. And the community loved them. And the community, like all communities, was primarily good people. I mean, even bad neighborhoods still have a lot of good people in it. And the good people in that neighborhood love these guys. And so that was a trifecta for me, you know, the, you know, do good, have fun and be creative. I love that. I love that. So that started you down your journey. And I want to talk about a little bit, Chris, because I mean, you've, it's probably easier to name the publications that you haven't been in. You know, you've been, <laughs> you've been, you've been in Time Magazine, you've been on CBS, you've been, you, I mean, you've done it all. And, you know, I want people to really get a sense of what you're really known for. We talk about you being a cop, you talk about you, you know, negotiating on behalf of the FBI and negotiating, you know, uh, with terrorists. I mean, talk about the inception of that, how all of that came to be. Well, you know, my original vision in law enforcement, once I got further into it, was like, I want to be on a SWAT team. Even when I was in college, you know, I'm kind of an average size guy. So I figured, all right, I need all the, all the tools I could get to make myself better. So I started taking martial arts when I was in college and I ripped my knee up, which actually been, uh, ended up being one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. Because that ultimately put me on a journey to become a hostage negotiator. Even with a rebuilt knee, uh, when I was on a police department, I was on a list to go to the SWAT team. The bureau hired me before... I get transferred to SWAT. So I, uh, Bureau had SWAT teams. So I got on the SWAT team in, in Pittsburgh. And then the Bureau's version of the Navy SEALs is the hostage rescue team. So I tried out for the HRT, the hostage rescue team, and I hurt my knee again. And it was at that point that uh, I realized that, you know, they could only put the knee back together so many times. And I, I decided, you know, we had hostage negotiators. It didn't sound hard. I thought, you know, I talk to people every day. I ought to be able, I could talk to terrorists. How hard could it be? And I went to the woman who was the head of the negotiation team in New York, and she was suitably unimpressed with me. <laughs> like, I, you know, I figured I kind of presented myself to her, Amy Bondro, and I just kind of went, ta-da, here I am. And I remember she looked down her, her nose at me over her glasses and, and asked me about qualifications and background, which I had none. And she said, well, you know, we're not interested. You can't do it. Everybody wants to be hostage negotiator. It sounds cool. You don't have any qualifications. But, you know, I came from a background that was like, figure it out, you know, find a way to make it work. So I said, there's got to be something I could do. And she said, there is going to volunteer on a suicide hotline. Now tell you've done that. Stop bothering me. <laughs> she, Amy was kind of a tough New York chick, you know, and, and, and I, I mean that in with all words of respect. So I went and volunteered on the hotline. I came back to her about five months later and said, hey, I want you to know I've been volunteering on a hotline for about the last five months. And she, she was shocked. She said, you're kidding. And I was shocked that she was shocked. And I thought like, yeah, you know, she said, I tell everybody to do that. Nobody does it, which is actually, you know, one of the great keys to success. You know, there's an old rule, never take advice from anybody you wouldn't take trade places with. So the flip side of that is take advice from people that you would trade places with or who are in charge of what you want to do. And I both wanted to trade places with Amy and I wanted to be a hostage negotiator and she was in charge. And, so, you know, I thought, you know, find out what you should do and do it. And because I was the only one that ever did it, she jumped, she had a line of five other people uh, ahead of me in line. None of them did what she asked them to do. She jumped me over everybody and I became the, the next negotiator. And then 
And thank God I hurt my knee because it was cool, man. I did more cool stuff as a hostage negotiator than I ever would have done as a SWAT guy. The hostage negotiator SWAT relationship is this. The SWAT guys show up, they surround a place, they lay out in the rain, in the mud, and the cold, and then the negotiators walk in and talk people out. <laughs> wow. So, you know, it was, it was awesome. And I, and I literally got to travel all over the world ultimately, you know, doing that. So it was, thank, thank God I hurt my knee. Yeah, for sure. And I want you to take us really quick, Chris. Take us to maybe your favorite story to tell, maybe what you can tell about your, your favorite uh, uh, negotiation and how that went for you and some of your emotions and some of the emotions of the other people around you and how that story uh, ultimately ended for you guys. Well, kind of a tie, a couple of favorites. One was the first time I got to negotiate in a real full-on siege. Bank robbery with hostages. At the scene. <laughs> well, we're about 9,000 years ago. The scene is Brooklyn, 1993, okay. which was actually <laughs> one of the craziest years in law enforcement history between terrorist attacks, bank robberies with hostages, prison sieges, Waco. I mean, 93 was one of the craziest years in the history of law enforcement. And I was up to my eyeballs in half of, half of it. It, it actually started out early 93 was a Lufthansa hijacking, which was the first hijacking of an American, of an airline to land on U.S. soil in 17 years. And there hasn't been a hijacking land, land since. So it was just nuts. It was crazy. It was, out, it was completely out of control. So, you know, that was what was going on. And, and bank robberies that have actual negotiations in them where the bad guys are trapped inside – it happens in the movies all the time, but in reality, it happens in the entire country once every 10 or 15 years. Bad guys always get away before the cops show up because they know the cops are coming. So trapping them inside is kind of a rare event. And I hadn't, I was fresh off the hotline. I was still volunteering on the hotline. My skills were sharp. You know, us and NYPD, we showed up, we surrounded the bank. And the first hostage negotiator was a PD guy, real talented guy, but it was negotiated to a stalemate. So the commander decided to swap us out and he said, Joe, you're out. He pointed at me. He says, you're, you're next up. And I just trust the process is a short, short answer. Since I was, my skills were high, I've been working hard on my skills. Although I was nervous, since I've been practicing, I just, I lapsed into my training. You fall to your highest level of preparation. You fall to your highest level of training. And I was, my training was high then. And I got on the phone and I, and I used a late night FM DJ voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Hour and a half later, I had one of the bank robbers out surrendering to me face to face out in front of the bank. So I want to get into the, into the psychological aspect of things and really talk about the psyche that you have to first off portray and the psyche of the criminal and, and how you have to perhaps reason with them or not reason with them. And are you getting on their level? Are you bringing them up to your level? Just talk about, maybe walk us through like a, a really high level process of what you're attempting to do when you're talking to, you know, when you're trying to negotiate. Well, we didn't know it at the time. Everything we were doing was based on neuroscience. So, you know, there's neuroscience behind a late night FM DJ voice. If you can hear my voice, I can reach into your brain and switch your emotional mood on you on a subconscious level. And I can start the process. You have to stop it. But you can't stop me from starting it, if that makes any sense. If you can see me or if you can hear me with my voice, I can reach in. I can hear something in your, hit something in your brain called mirror neurons, which will calm you down. It actually triggers a chemical change. It's not a voluntary choice on your part. It's one of the crazy things, the difference between business negotiation and terrorist negotiations 
terrorist negotiations are generally calmer. (laughs) (laughs) People don't get upset in terrorists. And when we negotiate with them with the late night FM DJ voice, the way people in business negotiations get upset all the time, you know, because we're hitting a mirror neuron. It's an application of emotional intelligence and we're applying emotional intelligence in a way that gives us the upper hand without you knowing it. And Again, it's hitting the subconscious. What we used to call the subconscious, which we now refer to as the the limbic system, which is where the amygdala and all those other fancy sounding things in the brain are, which I'm convinced that scientists come up with multi-syllable words for these things. So they should, you know, convince us that they're smarter than we are. <laughs> like the names of the parts of the brain where the, in the subconscious is crazy. The hippocampus is one of them. Like, who thought of that? The hippocampus. I mean, is that is that a place where our animals go to school? You know, is it college for hippos? Hippocampus. But to get back to your question, I mean, I'm I'm going to go in there. I'm going to start hitting that stuff with the tone of my voice, and then I'm I'm coming in with an emotional intelligence approach. Is really what it boils down to. Tactical empathy is just emotional intelligence. It's just in very intentional emotional intelligence. I know how I can affect you, so that you're going to want to deal with me. I know that if I can hit you with something called tactical empathy, my deal is 75% made. And at that point in time, then if I have to make any concessions in a business or personal interaction, I don't make any unnecessary concessions. And we proved it with hostage negotiation because as one of my colleagues, Derek Gaunt, likes to say, as a hostage negotiator, I sold jail sentences. (laughs) And we had buyers and happy buyers. And most people say, well, consider the alternative. Alternatives don't matter. If I try to take away your alternatives, you're going to refuse to agree with me out of spite, even if it's against your best interests, because your desire for autonomy is a trump card emotional intelligence move. And you will do stuff that's bad for you to preserve your autonomy. And I can give you 8 billion examples throughout history why that's true. Yeah, give us one really quick, Chris. We would negotiate a potential deal that was worth to all the parties at the table over the course of a year's time. We would have had three companies involved and probably 25 or 30 people. It was an $8 million deal. Now, I figured that my end of that at the end of a year would probably be a half a million dollars. The person that was the key point for setting it up, if he set it up for us, he would have arranged a dinner with the important people and he'd have got a 10% finder's fee for doing that if he pulled it off. So 10% of $8 million is $800,000. And all he had to do was set up a dinner with the right players in attendance. We'd have come to a, an agreement at the dinner. He'd have got his 800000 And my end was a half a mil. Now, before that, and my other partners, they'd have said, we make a half a million dollars this year. We had a, we'd have had a great year. We'd have been doing handstands. I'd, go, I'd, go, I'd buy a new car if I made a half a million dollars. But since one guy might have got $800,000 for setting up a dinner, it doesn't change how much we make. But everybody said, that's not fair. That was a perception of a bad deal. And the rest of the people involved said, we're not doing that. That's unfair. And unfortunately, the way it was pitched, the emotional intelligence was bad. I'm not, I'm, how dare that guy make $800,000 when all I get is a half a million dollars? And I remember I thought about that overnight and I thought, you know, this is the emotional intelligence thing that I've been teaching people and here all the people on my side of the table are going sideways over this perceived issue of fairness when they're all going to get rich. They just care about how much, how much effort another guy is putting in. So this emotional intelligence 
will make you crazy. It'll make you do stupid things that are against your interests. Or if somebody takes a right emotional intelligence approach with you, you'll make a deal and you'll be happy just because they had a good emotional intelligence approach. When you're negotiating with hostages or with terrorists for hostages, are you hitting certain triggers? Are you waiting? Like, are, are there certain phases of the conversation that you know once you initiate this emotional response, it's time to move on to the next phase? Or, or how do you break it down in that conversation? Yeah, well, I'm hitting emotional triggers and actually I'm, I'm going in first trying to diffuse negatives. That's actually the key to each and every business negotiation. That's why when I left hostage negotiation, once, I, once we had people in business finally point this out, I thought, you know, I've been doing this stuff for, for 20 years at this point in time. I already know how to handle this. I just didn't know it applied to everything. And the first key issue is, is diffusing negatives. 70% of buy decisions, 70% of deals are made not to accomplish gains, but to avoid losses, which is effectively to solve problems, the negative feelings that people have, 70%. Since I learned hostage negotiation before the year 2000, in about 2002, Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics for pointing this out, that this was a driver of all human behavior. And so, you know, I already knew how to do this stuff when, when Kahneman points out that this isn't hostage behavior, this is all behavior. This isn't American behavior. This is all behavior. This isn't Western European. This isn't Asian. This isn't African. This isn't Hispanic. It's all behavior. Our decisions are made by first, what losses do we have to avoid? Or actually, what losses do we perceive that we're going to avoid? So my rule in hostage negotiation was to diffuse diffuse the negatives, diffuse the losses, just by observing them. You know, we'll worry about whether or not we got to do anything after that just by observing it. And, and our gut instinct is, everybody's gut instinct on this is pretty good. It's what would you want them to not think? What would you want them to say? I don't want you to feel I'm being unfair. I don't want you to feel that we're pushing you around. I get turned on to this real early on when we were taught how to negotiate with Muslims, for lack of a better term whether they were taken hostages or whether we were just trying to get them to be witnesses in trials. And I was taught that Muslims across the world, particularly Middle Eastern Muslims, feel that the U.S. government is, is anti-Islamic and that it has been for over 200 years. Not just today's government, but it's always been that way. So I'll sit down, whether or not I got, I'm facing a Muslim on the other side of the table, or whether it's in a hostage situation, I'll say, you feel that the United States government has been anti-Islamic for over 200 years. And they'll look at me, or I could tell a change in her voice, like, holy cow. Yeah, you just that's how we feel. In the room. You just get straight to the elephant in the room. Yeah, the, the elephant in the room. You know, how to talk about the elephant in the room. And what I said was respectful, appreciative, and they know that I didn't say, yeah, you know, I've always felt that myself. They, I said, you feel that. And the amount of relationship building with a terrorist or just, you know, Joe Muslim in the street for you to simply recognize what their perspective is, the barriers start to fall away right away. And they know that I never said I agreed with it. And I never said it was right or it was wrong. Because I, I had a lot of Muslims, Middle Eastern Muslims. I've dealt with Muslims from all over the world, but started learning with Middle Eastern Muslims. They'd say to me, like, Wow, are, are you Muslim? Have you studied the religion? And I said, no, I'm not a Muslim. I respect it, you know, but I'm, I'm not going to pretend to you with you that, that either I am and I have studied a little bit, 
but I'm an idiot. I'm a dope. There's lots I don't know. <laughs> and we'd have phenomenal conversations. And whether they, again, because trying to get somebody to be a witness in a trial ain't that far off from negotiating a terrorist to surrender. Because we had a lot of trials in New York in the 90s where we had Muslim witnesses testifying against Muslims who appeared voluntarily in trial because the Muslims they were testifying against had committed crimes and distorted the religion in their view. And they understood that all we wanted was everybody to get a fair hearing, if you will. And they were like, you're not going to tell us what to say? And we'd say, no. You get on the stand and, you, and we're going to ask you questions, but your answers are your answers. And we just want the truth. It's a very similar negotiating dynamic. And we established, I mean, I got, I got relationships from to this day from those times, lifelong relationships, just because I said, I, I showed them I understood. I didn't say I understand. I showed them I understood. And it's amazing how bonded people are with you if you just show them that you understand. Yeah. That's beautiful. Chris, we've learned so much through our conversation and we're only halfway through and this has been so much value. I know the listeners are just like, man, they're just like taking notes. I want to, I know I have to go back and listen to this episode a couple of times already. And I just kind of think about just progressing down your journey and the experience that you're now gathering and some of the negotiations that you've now won, just kind of going down that path and getting more and more experience and doing more and more and getting more familiar with what it is that your craft is. Let's talk about your highest profile uh, negotiation or maybe the one that you were a part of. And let's talk about the one that maybe has the most notoriety for you. Well, are you talking about a hostage negotiation or business negotiation? Oh, let's, let's do hostage. Let's do hostage. Cool. And, you know, and I'll talk about a couple and they're both in a book. So I'm sure I'll talk about something that wasn't mentioned in the book or there'll be stuff in the book that I left out. But um, there were two straight negotiations in the Philippines with the same terrorist group, the Abu Sayyaf which is a group that and they managed to survive in one form or another throughout the years as their leadership changed and gets killed. They grabbed an American named Jeff Schilling and quote, ransom demand was $10 million. And we launched into that a negotiation. At the end of it all, they dropped the ransom demand. They didn't let him go, but they dropped the ransom demand. And this is over a period of eight months in its entirety. I'm coaching a guy from the Philippine National Police who's a brilliant guy. And all you got to do to be brilliant is to be open to coaching. And he was open. Plus, he was plenty smart and hardworking to begin with. And we're really, we're really stuck on this back and forth and back and forth. And at the time, this was the birth of the that's right moment, as my son likes to say. Because all we want to do is get this terrorist on the other side, a sociopathic murder and killer, straight out of the movies, bad to the bone, murder and rapist, serial killer, head of the terrorist group that was holding the American. All we want to do is get him to say that's right. That's it. You get somebody to say that's right when you summarize something from their perspective, not from a neutral perspective and not from your perspective, from their perspective. Because we were stuck. We couldn't get them off the 10 mil, no matter what we did, no matter what we said. We couldn't get the ransom into any sort of bargaining process. So I coached my guy, I say, look, next time we get this guy on the phone, this sociopath, all you're going to do is summarize everything he's ever said, how he said it. And as a matter of fact, you lay it on thick. And it's important in these sort of moments to get a breakthrough. If you don't feel like you're laying it on thick, you're not laying it on thick enough. And so my guy took the coach. He'd been getting better and better and better throughout the entire process. And he gets on the phone with a sociopathic terrorist. And he says, you know, you're not asking for ransom for the American. You're asking for war damages for 500 years of oppression south of the Philippines from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans. Because this was all the nonsense this guy was throwing out. Why, why they wanted 10 mil. It was economic harm and war damages. 
And your first thought is, what's what an American's got doing here today? What's he got to do with what the Spanish did 500 years ago? doesn't matter, because all of us are faced with negotiations each and every day where the other side is throwing stuff in our face that we had nothing to do with, or stuff that happened in the past that's no longer relevant. doesn't matter to us, but it matters to them. My guy summarized everything. 500 years of oppression, atrocities, economic harm, war crimes. And he finally gets done, and there's a moment of silence, and the sociopathic terrorist, murderer, and rapist on the other side says, that's right. And there's another moment of silence, and my guy says, all right, let's talk again in a couple of days. They hung up the phone. The $10 million ransom demand disappeared in that moment. They never, ever brought it up again. Kidnapping took a couple twists and turns over the course of the next couple of months. They tried to come up with some intermediaries, get this Malaysian politician involved, all sorts of nonsense. The Thursday before Easter, Monday Thursday, when Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, the Monday Thursday, the American walks away. The terrorists had gotten so lax in their security, they got them out in a mangrove swamp, they're only checking on them every two or three days. He says, what am I doing here? I'm leaving. Walks away, local spots him, alerts the military that the American is walking around a dirt road. They fly him out of there. We bring him back to the U.S., Back in the Philippines, about three weeks later, the group has captured somebody else. And when I first get there, the guy that I coached before says, you're not going to believe who called me on the phone. I'm like, yeah, I don't know who called you. The sociopathic terrorist from before. Really? What did he say? He said, have you been promoted yet? I have no idea what you said to me on the phone. I was going to kill the American. They should promote you. And he hangs up. I mean, wow. that was a sign of respect. <laughs> that was a guy calling in to pay his respect. And it wow. all flowed out of that that's right moment. Wow. That's beautiful. That's a that's a beautiful story. I love that. That that is amazing, man. Thank you for sharing that. And you think about one of the things I, w- I love to do, and even in any kind of call, it could be a negotiation for an actual real estate deal or whatever the case may be. But you know, one of the things I like to do first is I like to set the intention. I like to have an intention of serving the person that I'm looking to talk to, whether it's a client, whether it's a seller of a home, whatever the case may be, I I have the intention of putting their best interests first. So when I set that intention, I, and this is before I even, I even communicate with them, but this is maybe a minute before it's maybe 10 minutes before, maybe on my car right there. But I set the intention to know that first and foremost, I want to be able to serve this person. And then once I set the intention, I want to build rapport with them. And building rapport is the face where, like, you know, you talked about that you're, you're being relatable. You guys find common ground to, uh, I guess, relate to. And then once you build rapport, you want to kind of, once they know I like, can trust you, you want to uncover the problem and figure out what the problem, I mean, what, what's currently going on, why they're looking to sell their house, why they're looking for coaching, whatever the case may be. You uncover the problem and you uncover what the cost of staying in this problem. So not, ban- not being able to sell your house, not being able to find a culture croissant, not being able to jump into real estate, whatever it is, what the cost of that is. And then if your solution lines up with that, of course, give them your solution. But if it doesn't, then steer them to the direction that's, that's gonna best serve them, whatever the case is. So that's kind of how we break it down. And I wanna kind of turn the tables back to you and talk about the transition or when you knew it was time to transition from hostage negotiations to now jumping into business, or has this always been something like kind of on the back burner? I want to talk about some of the business negotiations you started doing and how and why you jumped into the business arena. What opportunity did you see there? Well, it always was an application, an idea that, that I had. I mean, when I was first volunteering on a suicide hotline, I thought this stuff is just too powerful. 
it should work in all aspects of life. I mean, you know, whatever it is, and that, you know, empathy, if you will. You know, why shouldn't everybody be the beneficiary of that? And I was always determined to apply it in all my business and personal situations. And it always gave me the itch. The difference is, you know, you can't guarantee success, but you can guarantee the best chance of success. So this is the kind of stuff that guarantees you your best chance of success. And I was always using it, always. And then learning from it and figuring out if for whatever reason I perceived that it didn't work, that my reaction was not that it didn't work. It was that I did something wrong. It was a mistaken application of the tool as opposed to the tool being fundamentally flawed. And I'm still convinced of that today. If we make a mistake, it's not because we picked the wrong tool. It's that we didn't use the tool right. Now, the biggest turning point for outside justification was when I talked myself into Harvard Law School's negotiation course because I wanted to make our hostage negotiations better. We'd had another case where we did everything we knew how to do and it wasn't enough. My attitude then was that that's only a sign that we have to get better. If we did everything we know and it was inadequate, we got to get better. So I'm in a Harvard Law School's negotiation course and the teachers there were like, you know, you're doing the same thing we're doing. Your stakes are different, but all your principles, all your dynamics, all your objectives, it's the exact same thing. And I was kind of like, awesome. You know, I've always thought that it was, but I needed somebody from an outside perspective to tell me that, to validate it, if you will, which is, I think, what we all need in, in many cases. You know, it helps to get validated by an outside expert. So they thought it was so cool that actually after I went through as a student, you know, I was available two years later. They asked me to be on the teaching staff to teach it. And even when I was there as a student, they kept asking me to stand up and talk about what I was doing because it was really working on the Harvard Law School students. I mean, I was taking their lunch money, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> which I love doing for people with from people that I know are smarter than me, because each and every one of those people in that class, I knew they were smarter than me because I was never smart enough to be able to get into that school. So that's why I particularly loved slaughtering them in negotiations. And it was at that point, and then when I got asked to come back there to teach, that, that gave me a credential, if you will, external validation so that other people would take chances on me to teach it for business. That's beautiful. I love it. I love it. So, and that's kind of where you kind of stepped into the business side of things and took yeah. on this business role and started doing business negotiations. So that's beautiful. Now let's maybe talk about really quick. Now we've, I mean, we've kind of progressed down your journey and I want to live the, leave the listeners with this before we get into some strategy. I want to leave the listeners with maybe your, your view of, or maybe when, when things are unstable for you, when you're unfocused or when you're out of alignment a little bit, what do you do to get yourself back on course, back in alignment? And if it helps, what questions do you maybe ask yourself to get yourself back in alignment? Well, you know, it's always hard to do because if you're out of alignment, then it also means that you're not thinking about the best ways to get back into alignment. But, you know, if you could step back, just a little bit, just a tiny bit. I mean, most negotiations that you're in is an opportunity. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in a negotiation, right? By definition, you're kind of lucky to be there. And what do I mean by that? I was in a negotiation a couple of years ago with a company that I didn't like. They were deceptive. They're not trustworthy. And I hate it when somebody lies to me and think they're out, outsmarting me. Um, I react very negatively to that. And I'm going through my preparation process in my head. We have a very specific, very brief preparation process. And I can't come up with the right things to say, what we would refer to as labels and calibrated questions. And I'm really frustrated because I'm in a negative frame of mind. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what? The only reason why I'm in this negotiation is this company is determined to deal with us because we got this process that's awesome. I mean, we are helping people 
We got an extremely valuable process and they want a piece of the action. So reality is I'm lucky to be talking to this person at all. I'm lucky to be talking to this liar. And as soon as I said to myself, I'm lucky to be in this negotiation, I came up with all the things I needed to say. And gratitude is a neuroscience hack. You're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. It's a neuroscience fact. If you don't believe me, watch Sean Acker's YouTube TED Talk on the issue. Yeah, I think it's called the science of happiness. He's a Harvard psychologist who ran the data. Not only are, are we all 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind, he says salespeople are 37% more effective. You know, the California huggy bear, fruits and nuts, gratitude thing that everybody in Southern California talks about is actually a neuroscience hack. You're smarter if you can be grateful in the moment. And that was one of the things that worked for me at that time. I said to myself, you know, I'm lucky to be here at all. And I got smarter. And that was one of the things that I needed to flip my mindset. Yeah, I love that. And you're so 100% right when it comes to gratitude and being that much smarter. I mean, gratitude and along with that, I would, I would throw in there forgiveness as well. Gratitude and forgiveness, yeah. those two things. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. So yeah. you know, I, I think we, we've kind of worked our way up to present day. And Chris, your, your story has been fascinating. And I want to kind of talk about negotiations a little bit before we kind of move on to the next segment. And we talk about the fact that you have a book called Never Split the Difference. And it brings me to wonder, when you enter a negotiation, what is the objective? What are you looking to accomplish? Are you looking to accomplish a win for both ends? Are you looking to win and somehow get over on the other person, which I think a lot of people have that preconceived notion that's what they're trying to do? Or are you looking to benefit the other person and you, you more so portray altruism? What is the objective of, of a negotiation? How should you kind of view negotiations? Information gathering and relationship building is basically it. Information gathering, what do I mean by that? I wanna find the best deal possible. You know, we don't use the phrase win-win, but that's in reality what it is. But win and lose are real tough things to define. So we don't even bother with that phrase. And typically, I find that someone who's starting to use the words win-win with me early on is really they win and they're going to take my money. It's a funny tell that I found to be really frequent. If somebody in the first two minutes says, hey, I want to make a win-win deal with you, they're trying to get me to drop their guard so they'll win. But in reality, that's what it is. I want to know what's the best deal possible. And because of the definition of black swans, that there's always things you don't know, whatever I think the best deal possible is, is inaccurate. I'm, I'm at best 75% accurate on what the best deal possible could be. So I want to gather the information, see if I can get a beat on what the best deal possible for both sides, of course, is, and whether or not I want to make that deal which I need to get a clear beat on you, which is why we'll, we make deals with liars because the deal's good enough for us and we know they're liars. You know, we just don't make ourselves vulnerable to them. If I can figure out the best deal possible, I'm focused on a long-term relationship with you. Am I going to be happy with that long-term relationship? And then I'll make up my mind whether or not I want to make the deal. I hate not making deals. I hate not finding out what the best deal possible would have been. Those are the things that bother me. If we didn't make a deal when we should have, and that's usually our own fault, if I didn't find out what the best deal was and I should have, and that's usually my fault and my approach. But if I can get draw a bead on best deal possible, do I want to have a long-term relationship with you? Now I'll decide whether or not I want to make that deal. Love that. 
And when we're negotiating, what should we pay attention to as far as the other parties? Should we be looking at maybe their values? And, and I want to I maybe look at, look at it from uh, maybe 30,000 foot view. We don't have to get into the details, but you know, there are certain, there are t- different types of tests that people take these days, such as the Myers-Briggs test, the this test, or different right. analysis. Are you a high SC? Are you a, so things like that. When you're listening to somebody's tone, to their, looking at their gesture, their movements, what are you trying to depict from that situation to quickly give off what, how you need to approach them? Well, if you got core value problems, the relationship is going to be bad long term. Like if integrity is important to you and you're dealing with somebody who's like, yeah, you know, or if the IRS catches up with me or, you know, here's how we get around this rule and here's how we get around that rule. You know, you got a core value problem and dealing with them is going to be painful. Um, so if you get a bad feeling from the other person, your gut instinct is probably pretty accurate. Um, and you, you got to ask yourself, do you want to deal with that bad feeling long term? You might say, yes, you know, the the provisions of the deal might be worth it for you for the time being. Maybe it's a one-year deal. Maybe it's a three-year relationship. Maybe it's a five-year relationship. But if your gut instinct, if your spidey sense is tingling, if you will, your spidey sense is tingling for good reason. And you can actually then bring it up. You know, you can say like, you know, something about this doesn't feel right to me. It doesn't feel good to me to be, to be talking about that kind of stuff. You know, we feel off. I mean, that, you, you mentioned earlier the elephant in the room. That's how you bring up the elephant in the room. And that's one of the best ways to it because the fact that you have a bad feeling, you could still have misinterpreted that. How do you know if you've misinterpreted it? You find a way to bring it up. You know, I'm just not comfortable with this kind of an approach. It just bothers me a little bit. That's a way to bring stuff up. And then you, then you work your way through the deal. That's an emotionally intelligent way to do it. You work your way through the, the negotiation, you get a better feel whether or not it, these are solvable issues. Lifestyle Design Acceleration Hacks. What is your favorite Before the Millions book? Oh, God, wow. All right, so Barking Up the Wrong Tree by Eric Barker. Eric is a great distiller of information about success. He writes really humorous. He's really smart. He's a regular guy. That book is so good that if he had come out with that book while I was still teaching in business schools, I would have made it a signed reading. I love that book. Nice, nice, nice. We'll definitely have that book in the show notes, ladies and gentlemen. So definitely check that out. Question number two, what is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or a tool. I suppose I'm on Instagram a fair amount. I tend to follow people that are inspirational. Love it. And so with pictures telling a thousand words, I mean, you know, they say you want to surround yourself with like-minded people. You're the average or your five best friends. You know, good influences. I try to get good influence into my head on the stuff that I see on Instagram. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? You know, I love to learn. I love to be active into life. So I like getting up early. I do some gratitude stuff first thing in the morning. You know, there's, I keep a uh, real brief, simple gratitude journal of stuff that I'm grateful for today. And then I like to get into the world and see, you know, what is the day going to bring me? What, what's going to happen? Because we get a new day, we get a recharge. We're Groundhog Day. We get another start again in another 24 hours. So I, I like that. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? Well, you know, it's hard work. And I suppose it's sacrificing leisure, if you will, but it's eminently more gratifying. I mean, you know, there's, do you want to be happy? Do you want to be comfortable? I thought about that the other day. I mean, either you, if you're trying to be comfortable, then 
you're eating bad food because there's a lot of food out there that's comfort food. And you end up not, if you're focused on your comfort, you're probably not very happy. But if you focus on who you are, if you focus on what really makes you happy, then you got to get out of your comfort zone. You got to discover cool stuff. You got to scare yourself. I mean, so I'm sure I'm rambling now, but that's kind of what my answer is. Not at all. Not at all. I love it. That's a beautiful answer. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? You know, it would have to be my father. He just taught me to work really hard and to figure stuff out. I mean, I always just took for granted that you had to do those two things. You know, figure it out, work really hard. That's got to be it. I love it. Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention of getting to the millions? Yeah, it's a comfort thing, man, you know? I mean, you get comfortable. I mean, that, that's, you know, the whole, one of the whole reasons for the title of the book, Good to Great. You know, you can be good at something and you get comfortable and you're scared to make changes. So comfort is probably the biggest barrier to improve. I love that. I love that. Now, Chris, speaking of books, I want to talk about your book, Never Split the Difference, really quick. And then I want you to tell the listeners where they can go to kind of learn a little bit more about you, read about you and what some of the offerings that you guys offer and maybe to kind of connect with you a little bit. Where can we find some of that information? But first, tell us about the book. The book is the application of the emotional intelligence secrets of hostage negotiators to your business and everyday life to solve barriers to have better relationships. I mean, the book has hit really well. It's It's been an Amazon bestseller since it came out two years ago. It's in the top three, four, five on in its category. It's killing. It's doing great. It's an emotional intelligence. It's readable. Yeah. Our, our co-op. Well, it's, you know, how do you apply what hostage negotiators do to the, your everyday challenges? And it's real simple. It's simple stuff. A lot of it's counterintuitive. You know, I ask you to do things you would have never thought would work, which we constantly get people back. You know, I tried your stuff and it worked. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> I know it does. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So again, that's that's called Never Split the Difference. And we'll have that book in the show notes. So Chris, where can we find out a little bit more about you? What's your website? How do we connect with you? All right. So the website, blackswanltd.com, is actually best accessed by subscribing to our newsletter, The Edge. The Edge comes out on once a week, Tuesday mornings. It's a short, sweet article. People love it for skill maintenance. Plus, it's a gateway to everything that we do. It's a gateway to the website. There are all sorts of past issues, past articles that you can get off the website. We got training announcements. I mean, it's a gateway to everything we have. And there's a lot of stuff that we put out there for free. The Edge is free. It's a good price. It's free. Chris, again, thank you for your knowledge. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for everything that you've talked about on the show. You've provided so much value. I've had thoroughly so much fun. I think that the listeners have, have had fun as well. So again, thank you for all that you do. And we'll talk to you very, very soon. Thanks, man. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in seeing if you're a good fit to work with the Before the Millions team, here's what I want you to do next. Head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash call. That's beforethemillions.com slash call and book an appointment to speak with our team. We'll get on the phone with you for about 45 minutes and we'll get you crystal clear on three things. Number one, what is your cash flow goal? How much are you looking to make every month? Number two, your personalized investing strategy. And number three, the best way to get started using cash flowing rental real estate.
Remember, starting and scaling your real estate investments and business doesn't happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. We've helped clients all over the world start and scale their investing efforts to six figures and beyond while enjoying life and making the world a better place. To find out if we can help you do the same, head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash call. I'm Dorel Lallier, and let's talk soon. 